Before we get started, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts on WDET. It's called The Beginning of the End, and it's hosted by Alex Trajano. And The Beginning of the End is a show about when, how, and why things end. From the end of living in the closet to stealing a plane to get your entire family out of Vietnam. Whoa. We have new episodes in the works, but you can listen to season one right now. Go to beginningoftheend.org. From WDET in Detroit, this is Twisted Storytellers. I am your curator and host, Satori Shakur. I come from a long line of storytellers, old black women from the South, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, who told stories to teach, to, to warn, to entertain. To me, human and story are synonymous. Good evening. I called Dwight Skip Stackhouse to invite him to tell a story uh, at the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers. And the first thing that just stopped me in my tracks over the little iPhone was his voice. His voice is just so irresistibly engaging. It's just made of all of these melodious tones of, of a great storyteller, of a mountaintop speaker. The language that he uses is so eloquent, so poetic, and, and it's like listening to an urban Shakespeare weave a masterful tale, and that's what you're going to hear uh, with this story, ladies and gentlemen. So it's, I am pleased and proud and excited to introduce you to Dwight Skip Stackhouse. Standing before you is a 69-year-old mama's boy. <laughs> now, if you know something about love, and you know something about grief, and you know something of the pain of losing someone you love, absolutely then you will understand my story. Please know I am not talking about the kind of emotion normally associated with that overused word. I was raised here in the city of Detroit when it was a destination spot, when people came from around the globe to enjoy the bounty here, it was once known as the Paris of the Midwest, city of magic. I was one of those tree-climbing, marble-shooting, insect-catching, peeking under the little girls' dresses kind of all-American boy. But no matter what the activity I was engaged in, no matter what time, no matter what place, I would be overcome by an urge just to see her. And I would scurry down from the tree. I'd run home from the park just to see that she was there and that she was all right. I would find her doing ordinary things, cooking, cleaning, reading her beloved Bible. I'm the fourth of five children, two brothers, two sisters. We were all born into a loving family. My father was a very strict 
disciplinarian. He was a very learned man. He spoke four languages fluently before the age of 20. But he was consigned to menial labor all of his life because of racism in this country and the blessing or the curse, depending on your point of view, that he was born with, inky black skin. He wanted his children to be something, to be somebody. And so he insisted on education. It made us read the classics and delve into the arts. I did this, we, we all did this. But I preferred my mother's ways. A tender, gentle, earthbound woman who I absolutely adored. She was a religious woman. And she chose, like we all do, a God and a religion that she could faithfully serve. So leaving behind the religion of her parents, she elected to become one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And she raised all of her children this way. We were immersed in a beautiful fantasy, no less a fantasy than any other Christian hope, life everlasting on a paradise earth. What a treat for a seven-year-old. She wanted, perhaps as much as anything, for one of her sons to be a minister. And there was little chance of that with her youngest son. He was born fearless and ruled the streets. Her first child was born beautiful and ruled women of the same. I, on the other hand, was born without the beauty, without the brawn. I was born loving her, needing her. And so, from a little boy, around the age of seven, I would study the Bible with her and immerse myself in the teachings of her religion and her God. And by the age of 20, I had become an ordained Christian minister. I took a wife. We bore two beautiful sons. I had become all she ever wanted me to be. Now, please understand, there's no, there's no sacrifice here. Because if she was happy... I was happy. My mother was too lovely for the world around her. Pretty twice, her mother would say. It is 1976. And I find myself in a hospital room where my mother lay dying. She was 
54. I was 29. I'm holding her hand. And I'm thinking, if I hold her long enough, if I hold her tight enough, he will not take her. And so I prayed. We prayed. And he took her anyway. And a rage, a rage boiled inside of me that I cannot explain. Pieces of me fell off. The better parts of me fell off like molting skin. And when she died, part of me died with her. If he wanted to kill his own son, that was his business. But I could find no way to forgive him for taking my mother. And in the middle of the psychosis, I began to plot and hate him. But not just him. I hated anyone who was indifferent to her passing. How could you go on? Why are you here when she is not? With her last breath, she uttered his name. Jehovah, she said. I wanted to kill something. Anyone. But I could barely stand. I had no weapons. I had no power. But in the psychosis, I thought, sin. I, I could sin. But at the age of 29, I knew nothing about sin. When they when they pried my hands from hers and carried me home to her house, once my home, now just a place of pain, only pain, I wept like that baby. I was 29 years old, but I may as well have been nine. I may his will have been that infant. And so I lost my family, my wife, my boys. I left that religion, all religion, and got drunk. It didn't take much. I got drunk for the first time in my life, and I stayed drunk for two years. I found my way into drugs and women. It is not entirely fair to say 
that I was used by women who took advantage of my grief and my weakness. I thought the ministry was very much like theater. And so I auditioned for a play. A play called The Amen Corner, written by the famous writer James Baldwin. And as luck would have it, I got cast in the play. And again, as luck would have it, the director knew Mr. Baldwin and he asked him if he would come and see the show, and he did. And Jimmy and I spent quite an evening together. And uh, at the end of it, he asked if I would join him on the road, become his business manager. And I said, yes to that. I think perhaps my life is looking up. I don't need to be drunk all of the time. <laughs> I was meeting famous people before his fall from grace, Bill Cosby, Maya Angelou, Marlon Brando. I even found my way to the soft lips of one Jackie Onassis. But it didn't help. Nothing helped. Because you see, there was only her. There was only my mother. And there was no sound of life. There was no hope of heaven. There was no vision, no promise, no memory of wife or child. Nothing could take her place. Eventually I found a woman in Boston and we settled down, which led to me selling cars, which led to selling drugs, which led to immersing myself in the world of cocaine. And soon, I was introduced to the evil cousin of cocaine, a loathsome alchemy called crack. And soon I was homeless. I remember walking the streets one night, one very cold January night, and there was, there was someone following me. I could see in the reflections of the windows as I walked below the street lights, a crusty old fellow, filthy from head to toe. And so I turned to confront him only to discover that it was me. The glare in the window, those reflections, were me. Where had my mother's little boy gone? And what would she do if she could see me now? I trudged on in that cold until the sun came up. And I heard in the distance the sound of a joyful noise. And I followed that sound and found myself at the bottom of eight grand stone steps that were protecting two large wooden doors of a Gothic church. And I found the courage, actually the cold, ushered me in. <laughs> 
and I startled nearly to death the first person to see me, being as I was a filthy collection of frozen fluids, mucus, tears, ice, and snow. But he found his Samaritan self, and he fed me, and he warmed me, and he asked me to stay for the afternoon prayer. I declined. He allowed me to survive that night. But I went directly from that church to the crack house doing what crack addicts do. I simply wanted to die. She's gone. I have no reason to be here. And later, going from homeless shelter to homeless shelter, I I found a hovel, and I thought, this, this will be the night I'll, I'll go tonight. But on the walls of this grimy place, I could see images of my sons. I could see their faces, and they were saying, Daddy, don't. Daddy, don't do it. But I had to do it. I couldn't find my way. I, I simply couldn't go on. I thought... I'll write to them. I'll let them know what has happened to their father. They had at least a right to know, but I could not find pencil and paper. But among my few belongings, I still had the tape recorder that I used to tape Mr. Baldwin's lectures, and I taped over one of his lectures. And I would swear to you, I never prayed to him, the traitor that took my mother. I still have this tape and I am saying on this tape oh God help me help me help me and I fall asleep eternal sleep I hope but I awaken in the morning I have no place to go and nothing to do. So I head out into the cold because, you see, at this point, only the ice, the cold, the wind can tolerate me. I head back to the bar where I had been the king of the drug dealers. But I'm too embarrassed now to even be there. So I leave. I go two, three doors down the road to a greasy spoon. I should not have been sleepy, but I was. And I found myself nodding on the counter there, looking over the menu as, as if I could afford to buy a cup of coffee. And I look up in the doorway, and I see a figure standing there dressed in dark clothing. The demons have come for me, I suppose. It is time I'm done. I have quit. But the figure has a gentle, 
countenance and he, he comes gently towards me and he taps me on my shoulder and he has the visage of an angel and I look up it is my younger brother who has ruled the streets of Detroit. He has found me in the streets of Boston. And I wept like a baby. And my brother said to me, he said without ridicule and without condemnation, my brother said to me, Skipper, let's go home. I don't look back on Boston. I don't look back on that 15 year saga. On January the 10th of 1988, I was a crack addict. On January the 11th, I was born again and home. I think often of my mother's metaphorical milk. I think of that love she poured into all of her children, without whom I would not be here today. Now I cannot explain to you any more than I have in the time that I have what all of that has meant to me. But I can tell you this, my mother is buried somewhere in the city of Detroit. I, I don't know where. I have no wish to know. I cannot go there. If I do, I become crippled by uncontrolled tears. But I see her in my mind's eye as she looked Fifty, sixty years ago, and I am a boy longing to see her and who misses her at a level I simply cannot describe. Dwight Skip Stackhouse never fails to move me. His autobiographical novel, Mother's Milk, is available wherever books are sold. So you can get to Dwight Stackhouse's website, uh, www.stackhouseinc.com. And that's Inc., I-N-K, stackhouseinc.com. Thanks for listening to Twisted Storytellers, a production of WDET, produced by Zach Rosen, sound design and mixed by Sam Bobian, executive producer Alex Trajano. For more stories, please visit www.secretstorytellers.org. The music that you heard in today's podcast comes as a courtesy from our friends at Ghostly Songs. We want you to go to iTunes. Tell us what you thought about the story. Did you like it? Did it move you, touch you, inspire? Did it make you mad? Did it make you glad? We want to hear about it. Go to the iTunes store, 
Put Twisted Storytellers in the search engine and write a review.